Hey friends, my name is Gabby Rosley, and this is the Crucial Conversations podcast, a platform dedicated to self-fulfillment and breaking the cycle of wasted potential. Using the tools of perspective, knowledge, wisdom, and awareness, I, with the help of qualified expert guests, share free insight and proven strategies that lead to all forms of success. If you are ready to start investing in yourself and living the life of your dreams, because I promise it is possible for all of us, you came to the right place. Together, we will help each other level up and have the crucial conversations necessary to do so. All righty, everyone. I am thrilled for today's episode because I have a very, very unique and special guest on the show today with me, Jordana Sade. Thank you so, so much for coming on the show. I'm going to read a little bit of your background before we get into it, and then I'll give you the floor so that you can introduce yourself in your own terms, Uh, but I want to make sure that I don't miss a beat here. So Jordana is a clinical nutritionist, hypnotherapist, and expert in eating behavior, and Jordana runs a vibrant practice that focuses on the connection between mental health and nutrition and our relationship with food. So I know in my past episodes, I have brought some guests on who have discussed foods, the difference between whole foods, processed foods, all of that fun stuff. But I'm really excited for Jordana to be able to dive into the relationship that we all have with food. Uh, And Jordana actually has her signature program, The Mindful Method, uh, where she works with women all over the world using that signature program to help facilitate permanent changes around eating behaviors and reprogram the nervous system to end self-sabotage. She focuses primarily on the brain-body connection and believes that if the body is holding on to weight, there are imbalances in both the mental and physical bodies. So Jordana helps her clients recover their mental and physical health through the use of holistic nutrition, functional medicine, and hypnotherapy and behavioral psychology. So Jordana, thank you so much for coming on the show. uh, And I'm very, very thrilled to have you here. Oh my gosh, it's an honor. That was such a wonderful introduction. (laughs) I love it. I had to get it all in there. Um, So aside from all of her accomplishments and all of her credentials, uh, Jordana also has a podcast, the Mindful Method Podcast. I believe you did have a little rebranding recently. Am I correct? Yeah, you did. Okay, very cool. So I wanted to make sure that I I got that right. Uh, I'm a big fan. I've listened to a couple of her episodes since I got in touch with her. Uh, So really, really awesome stuff. I will make sure to link all of that in the episode description. Uh, But realistically, Jordana is amazing, has her credentials. But aside from all of that, she is a very intelligent and passionate human being. Her energy radiates through her podcast, which is why I'm very excited to have her on today's platform. So Jordana, if I miss anything, and if you want to kind of extend the introduction to what the mindful method is and what your passions really are, please, please do so. Yeah. I mean, again, thank you so much. That was very well-rounded, I would say, but my passion is really in understanding the connection between the brain and the body. And I have a, of course, like there's an origin story for everything, right? Um, nobody really gets into this business unless, you know, you've, you've experienced something that kind of led you to dig in deep. And that, that really was my case, you know, all credentials aside, I would never just decide to like pick up this or that or go back to school and study the brain unless I was so desperate to come up with my own solution, um, to heal myself. And that's kind of where all of this started. And so, you know, I was a nutritionist for a really long time and um, I struggled with eating disorders and substance abuse and just addictive tendencies. And I just thought that when I became a nutritionist, it would like solve all of my problems and it actually made it so much worse. And so I was then forced to kind of, you know, dig deeper and find a solution. And through healing myself, it was just such a a passion, like a a profound journey that um, I knew I needed to share it with others. So, yeah. 
Absolutely. Well, that's really cool. And honestly, I want to start, I want to start there. I want to kind of talk about this overarching theme that we have with food, a lot of the common habits of overconsumption, and you touch on addiction in a lot of your episodes, um, addictions, particularly to certain foods, and also the neurochemistry that goes on behind the scenes when we consume those foods and everything like that. So where I would really like to start is what the natural approach to relationship with food has tend to tended to be in the last couple of years and in the past and where you feel like that is migrating toward and what your unique approach is with the brain body connection versus looking at those two entities as as separate parties yeah for sure i will say that i do think in the past i don't i want to say a couple of years like to maximum, there is a big movement for really digging deeper and understanding like more of a root cause approach. But if we actually look at the span of like, let's say the past 10, 20 years, the entire nutrition and health industry is an absolute fucking disaster. Oh, I don't know if I can swear here. I'm so sorry. <laughs> yep. No, you absolutely can. You absolutely can. Um, yeah. So it it really like if we look at, you know, 150 years ago, obesity didn't exist. And so we start to ask questions like, okay, well, how did we become obese? And and, you know, we can talk about the processing of foods and we can talk about set more sedentary lifestyles, which I think are valid things to point out. But the truth is, if it were that simple, then, you know, a gym membership or following a whole food meal plan would solve the problem. And if we look at the the influx of the dieting industry, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. It keeps like doubling in revenue every year. Yet obesity rates continue to rise. It's like something's not adding up here. And so, and that's what I found with myself. You know, I was obese as a kid. I was the only obese kid in class. And when I went on my first diet when I was like eight years old and people started to want to be friends with me and pointed out, I really just learned that being thin meant I was lovable and being overweight meant I wasn't. And so I dedicated like the next two decades, I just chased yo-yo dieting and and various ways to keep my weight down and the reality is you know if diets worked you would never need to diet again right and the dieting industry wouldn't be so profitable but so we 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 really focus in on that and then you know we have people that know exactly what to do like the majority of people know an apple's healthier than a chocolate bar right but they continue to choose the chocolate bar anyways so when we understand that fact it's it's not then a question of like well, you know, what food should I eliminate from my diet or how often should I exercise? It goes much, much deeper. The real question is, why do you continue to engage in self-sabotage? If you know the apple is healthier and you have a goal of, I want to lose weight, I want to be healthy, whatever, why do you go back for the chocolate bar? And that is where my entire practice really resonates and, that, and that's where it lives. It's really understanding um, the programs in the nervous system that would lead somebody to choose the chocolate bar over and over again. And let me just be very clear. I love chocolate. This isn't to villainize chocolate or cake. And I don't want to live in a world where I have to restrict that. I want to be able to enjoy it. But I think that there is this point of, you know, um, in enjoying and feeling, enjoying food, all types of foods and not having to restrict versus like self-sabotage and really being able to find that line and reprogramming or addressing the body to allow your behaviors match your goals is, is the, the, field that I'm trying to build. I believe it's kind of revolutionary because the current solution that we have to obesity doesn't work, obviously. So we need a new solution. Yeah. 
Absolutely. So when you talk about the relationship that people have with food, can you talk a little bit about what your relationship was like with food? I know that you've touched on it briefly in in your episodes on your podcast, um, how that might be related to trauma and how that actually materializes in our relationships with food to this day. For sure. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the best studies, I believe it's um, conducted by Wiss and colleagues in 2020. Uh, they did a big study that found that one of the most prominent predictors of obesity is early life adversity or childhood trauma. And, you know, uh, when I was writing my thesis and I was looking at eating behaviors, I think one of the first things that I had to prove was that overeating behaviors is similar, if not the same, as addic- addiction. And we know that childhood trauma and, um, you know, situations in your childhood can affect the nervous system so profoundly to make that individual engage in self-sabotaging behaviors. And, and it's no different from food. So, you know, when I was little, when I was a child, I was the only obese kid in classes a long time ago. Um, and so my mom was a chef and she's a, an amazing, she's an Italian cook and she's an immigrant. And so the way really that she showed love was through food. And, you know, we, my parents struggled with finances and, and my dad was an entrepreneur and got really sick. And so there was a lot of tension in the household. And the only way that I knew how to self-soothe or escape from that was through food. Um, because the reality is like food is most often our first and most accessible drug, right? We're very rarely as an eight-year-old, we're like, exposed to cocaine. It happens, but but food is often that kind of crutch. So for me, it started quite young where I, I think was naturally just a bit bigger boned. And then I learned that food equaled love and food was kind of a safe place for me. And then, you know, when it people started to notice that I looked different and started to point it out, even within my family, you know, friends would come over and my mom would say things like, oh, they can finish their plate, but Jordani, you've had enough. And already there, that kind of sets the standard of like, it's bad if I eat and if I eat, I'm going to gain weight. And if I gain weight, then I'm not going to be lovable. And this is very, very, very problematic for the nervous system because food is required for survival. And so we can't restrict it because the nervous system is very smart. It's wired for survival, not success. You can say all day long, I want to be thin, I want to be healthy, whatever. But if you continue to restrict the thing that's keeping you alive, your brain is literally going to shut down higher order functions because it thinks it's in danger. So it's going to shut down impulse control. And the next time you have access to that food, you'll overconsume, right? And so it's like, I basically grew up thinking that eating was bad and developed a very unhealthy relationship to food where I didn't even really realize I had an eating disorder until a roommate pointed it out in like my early 20s. But uh, basically, like I would just over, over exercise or eat barely anything. I was always on a new diet. And then when I became a nutritionist, I was like, I'm going to solve all of my problems because I'm going to learn all about how to remain lean forever. And all I did was learn more and more information about which foods were bad for you. And so then when I restricted those to the point of like basically emaciation, like hospitalized, it was, it was I was like running marathons, just like burning myself into the ground. And I knew I couldn't do it anymore. Like I knew it was going to kill me. And so I had to find a different solution. And that's when, you know, learning about the psychology and how feelings of inadequacy leads to an individual to want to self-soothe. And despite true hunger and full signals, that's when I started to kind of put these pieces together. 
Very interesting. And I think that you have your you have your personal side of the story and the emotions and everything that were tied to your experience. But also you have all of the research and all of the hard work that you have spent developing your thesis and and all of that to back it up. So I think that there are two sides of it because I feel like relationship, there's the balance in whether it's with a significant other or a friend or with food, you know, there's the emotional side and then there's the factual, you know, evidence to back it up. So, so well said. <laughs> so, so very cool. Um, now when, when you were talking, you were talking a lot about restriction. So what would, what would the alternative to restriction be in your approach? If you, let's say, were to come into contact with a client who is trying to achieve goals that may institute weight loss, but in the past has primarily stuck to restrictive dieting, what would your alternative method be in, you know, giving that client advice? Okay. Well, and I I touched on this before, but we just need to really recognize that like from a very factual scientific place, restriction doesn't work. Like, and, and I think that people get really drawn into the idea that it does because they'll try it for a little bit and they'll lose the weight. And then they're like, well, of course it works. And then they'll regain it back because it's like, well, as it works as long as you work it. Right. But if we actually look at the facts in all of the diets that it could ever exist, weight loss initially is very quick. And then within eight to 12 months, most people gain it back and then sometimes a little bit more. So it actually isn't a solution, right? So we can just, you know, never touch alcohol again for the rest of our lives, but we will survive. Food, we can't do that. And the primitive part of the brain that deals with eating doesn't distinguish between good and bad food. It's like, it's it's very primitive. It just knows all food is survival and anything other than food is not survival. Um, And so as soon as we put that element of restriction on, like I said, the primitive part of the brain starts to shut down higher order functions. And so when we're approaching this from a way where we need an individual, not need, but the individual obviously, you can't eat three boxes of donuts and expect the weight to come off, right? So where do we kind of find this balance? So the first thing is to understand that you know, guilt or shame or anything like that around that type of food is not necessary. And it actually makes the behavior worse because beating yourself up solves nothing. You've already eaten it, right? So all it does is keep you stuck in this like, I am bad. I am a failure. And your daily behaviors match your deepest beliefs about yourself. So if the belief is I'm a failure, right, then the behavior is going to match failure mentality. So the first thing that we need to do is really just cultivate a healthy mindset around all types of behaviors. It's almost like we want to observe ourselves from a third party perspective and and not like identify too much with the behaviors that we're engaging with. The other thing that's really important, and this is a hard one to convey without working with the client, but bear with me. Your body actually wants to be healthy. It knows how to be healthy. In any given instant, your body is creating millions of chemical reactions just to keep you alive, just keep your blood pH at a certain level, right? So your body's job is to heal and maintain homeostasis and balance. Being overweight, especially significantly overweight, is not adaptive for the body. Like you, the best thing for the body and the body knows the healthiest thing for the body is for it to be very able to run away from danger, right? And so if it's holding on to weight, it means there are imbalances in both the mind and the body. But the body knows how to be lean. And so when the brain tries to come in and control like only 80 calories, only this and like only 600 grams of whatever, right? That we create a disconnection between the gut and the brain. 
I have a one-year-old daughter. I, no matter how much she likes cake or ice cream, whatever, you can't overfeed her, right? So we're actually born with this intuitive process and somewhere along the way we begin to unlearn it. And that's when we create this disconnection. We follow somebody else's meal plan, right? And then when we do that, we can no longer hear true hunger and full signals. Then we're really just responding to emotions. And so like step number one in my work is to really help people create that mind-body connection again so that they can hear true hunger, true full and be able to distinguish it. And then I use a lot of like hypnotherapy and behavioral psychology to uh, work through the cravings so the cravings stop coming because cravings are very rarely I'm actually hungry and they're more often I feel dysregulated I'm tired I want a hit of something right but if hunger's not the problem then eating's not the solution it's just that for years and years and years you've taught the brain that it is so now we just need to unteach the brain that program did that answer your question Absolutely, it does. And it's very, very interesting. And when you had said that it it was the, oh, you know, I might be tired, or I might be thirsty, but I'm going to eat because I've just told myself that this is a quick and easy solution, but it not, might not actually address the root problem. And I remember when I was young, and uh, I had, I would eat a meal and I would finish, but I would still be hungry. And I would ask for seconds. Um, you know, my my mom would say, well, maybe you're just thirsty, I would try to try to drink a little bit of water, you haven't touched your water yet, or whatever. And after a glass of water, I wouldn't be as hungry anymore. And so just very interesting that the cues that we have from our body to tell us whether our stomachs are actually full, because there's no question of whether your stomach is full or not, but it does fall back to the emotional side of the relationship with food when we think it is, and we're trying to fill a different hole, but like food is our solution. So really, really interesting um, about the you know, just the cues that we get from our body, but not necessarily knowing what the root is. So identifying the root being your number one go-to in all your, all your client relationships is very interesting. Um, and you also said something that rang very true to me was that your deepest beliefs about yourself become your daily practices. And I think that that is so profound because it shows up not, not only with your relationship with food, like it's, it's in your all, all areas of your life. You know, your deepest beliefs about yourself do show up in your daily practices. And I believe that to take it a next step that what you think other people think about you is really what you think about yourself. And so really being able to take in those cues from your body and your brain of, hey, I feel this way in this situation. Okay, let me address the root of the problem and understand what my deep seated beliefs about myself or about my relationship with food really are. So really, really interesting stuff. Um, so with with that being said, the whole concept of food psychology, can you just give a broad definition for what food psychology is? Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, like anything, we can, we can make food separate. Like we can believe that food is just this like outside of us entity similar to like makeup or our cars. But the reality is it is so unbelievably ingrained within us because it is the number one thing we need to survive. And so if we require it in order to survive, then it, our brain is going to build psychological pathways that relate to it. And so food psychology is really just um, understanding that rather than obsessing about what you eat, let's really understand why you're eating. And and that it's it's that why, it's that deeper seated meaning that um, that leads us down the path of, is this true hunger? It, it, is it not, right? Is it a craving? And then if it is a craving, like how do we actually now train the brain to not send us those cravings? Because the answer here is not just like, oh, you know, you just like never follow the craving. Like the, the goal is that we train the brain to not send the craving so that like, 
you can meet your needs instead of eating them, you know, so that you hear I'm tired instead of I'm hungry. Um, but you said something, I know I don't want, don't mean to go back, but I heard this amazing quote and it's not mine, but I want to share it because it's so good. It was around how, um, what we think other people think about us, we think about ourselves. There's this quote, it goes, I'm not who I think I am. I'm not who you think you am. I am. I am who you think I am. It's so, <laughs> yes. it's so good. Um, and I think that's brings me to the I am's, right? Like this is the identity. And where do we get this identity? Well, of course, if you keep, you know, if you try a diet and you failed it, then you learn like I'm unreliable. Or if the diet's, let's say, low carb and you eat carbs and you lose control around it, then we learn you can't trust yourself around these foods when that's like the worst thing. I call this the conflict contract. If you can't rely on yourself, then like who the fuck can you rely on, right? So like Absolutely. this whole like I can't trust myself or I have to keep it out of the house, like Mm-mm, that's not the vibe. That's not solving any problems. All that's doing is just like creating ignorance around and cr- making the craving stronger, right? But when we talk about like these identities, it's like, well, where do we get them, right? If I want to so badly be healthy, and this isn't just even about fitting into a size zero gene, this is like I want to be healthy and the when the body is lean and not holding on to too much weight it is healthy and we can't deny that. And so how do if I want it so badly how does my identity get created that works against that goal? And this is really where we get into like the subconscious versus the conscious mind and the thing with the subconscious mind is like this is where all of our identities, our habits, our automatic behaviors, like you don't have to think about your heart beating. You don't have to think about your stomach digesting. These processes are very, very, very automatic. It's so subconscious that you're probably not even fully aware of them. They're just like governing your behavior on a daily basis. And then you're like, I don't know how I ended up here. But you're like, well, I'm here. So now we got to figure it out. (laughs) Very interesting. Okay. So I want to, because I have a feeling we could spend a lot of time on this, but I want to talk a little bit more about your thesis because I feel like, just like you said, the last couple of years, there have been a lot more practitioners interested in the mind-body connection and everything of that sort. But I know that you have begun your research on how psychedelic therapy may lead to healing people's relationships with food. I know that you have also talked about hypnotherapy. So I want to now breach into the subconscious mind and how psychedelic therapy or hypnotherapy may open up that pathway for you to address some of the patterns we have unfortunately, you know, ingested and acted out for so long that in order to cure the root of the problem, we might have to venture into the subconscious mind. So I want to give you a moment and just the complete floor to talk a little bit about your thesis and how tapping into the subconscious mind through those avenues helps to take this relationship healing to the next step. Yeah, so great. So I'll start by just kind of explaining just so briefly what the subconscious is. Um, We have the two parts of the brain. It's the subconscious and the conscious mind. There's many parts of the brain, but these are the two states, let's say. Um, Subconscious, we live about 98% of the day in, and the conscious mind, we live about 2%. And your goals and your dreams live in the conscious mind. So you can say like all you want. I want to be rich. I want to be thin, whatever. But if the body's on a completely different program, your behaviors are going to contradict your goals. So a sure way to tell if you have like a conflict in your subconscious and your conscious mind is if you have a goal and you keep sabotaging it, like you can do it for a couple of weeks and then it's like, no, no. And then you fall back to old programming. 
And one of the reasons why the brain does this is because the brain is obsessed with keeping it al- itself alive. Like, of course, right? All the brain wants is, is survival. And so when we grow up, we build these programs in our brain and they're all based off of what we see around us. And as long as it's not going to kill you right now, it's probably going to be good. Like the brain's going to be like, okay, this is a good program. We're going to continue to reinforce it. If we think about the brain like a deeply wooded forest, like every time you walk on a path, it gets easier and easier to walk on that same path rather than bushwhacking through the forest, right? The problem is every day when we wake up, there's a very brief moment where we kind of forget who we are because we're like going from dream state to like to conscious state. But then as soon as we clue in, your brain remembers everything that's happened to you, right? And so like the brain's number one job is to remain consistent to its identity. So then it's like, how do we find what that identity really is? But the reason why it does is because like, imagine how much time it would take to relearn how to brush your teeth every day, right? Like this is very, very, very adaptive. And however, if we have programs that don't connect to the thing that we desire, the goal that we have, we're good. We're never going to get there or it's going to be kicking and screaming or like pushing a boulder up the hill. So the reason why I love psychedelics and why I went into it for my thesis is because especially after the age of 25, these programs become very resistant. It's very hard to change the brain. And there's a reason for that. Um, From an adaptive perspective, by the age of 25, your brain has actually learned everything it needs to in order to survive. Um, Like if I told you, close your eyes and think about a color that doesn't exist, you probably wouldn't be able to do that because it doesn't exist, right? But if you randomly saw a new color, your brain would be forced to create a new neuronal network. It would be this like amazing profound moment. Doesn't really happen after the age of 25. Even if you haven't experienced a parent dying, you've read about it or you've seen it in a book or, you know, like a, it's a friend, it's happened to a friend so you can empathize and you can understand, like you have pathways that understand how to deal with that emotion. So... When the brain gets super resistant, but we want to heal and we want to change, we kind of have to utilize some tools (laughs) and we're going to call them tools. Um, There are three ways to change the brain. Hypnosis is one of them. That's why I'm a hypnotherapist. Repetition is another. So if you want to relearn how to play the piano or something, you have to sit down at the piano every day, learn, practice over and over again. And then the other way is trauma. And we definitely don't want to utilize that. But some things are so traumatic that it changes our brain forever. And so if we have these traumatic experiences in childhood and it changes the nervous system in a way that makes that individual more likely to self-sabotage or develop the identity of like, I'm not good or I'm a failure or things are always hard for me or I'm not lucky or whatever it is, then now we kind of have to go in and change that. And so psychedelics are extremely, extremely useful for being able to create new neuronal networks. It allows for something called neurogenesis, which is just like the development of neurons in the nervous system in a, in a much different way than any other, like even hypnotherapy, right? The two together are golden, but there's nothing that we can do on this like human, very physical world that is going to create, like allow the brain to tap into different parts that we don't use on a daily basis in the same way that psychedelics can. Okay. So when we have really repressed trauma, Part of the subconscious mind's job is to keep representing it in very subtle ways so that it can be resolved. Now, the problem is if you didn't resolve it the first time, you won't be able to now. And so you're going to keep manifesting situations that keep you stuck in this behavior. It's like every time that you look in the bank account, you always have the same amount of money, even though you like picked up a new job. It's like you seem to manifest it away somehow. Um, but that's because that's where your programming is. 
So when we utilize something like psychedelics, we can actually go in and work through or process stored trauma in a very safe way that we can't do when we're fully conscious. Now, the first thing that I had to do with my thesis is, like I said, prove that overeating is the same as substance abuse. So psychedelics actually in the 1940s when Albert Hoffman uh, founded um, LSD, psychedelics were used and cl- like clinically tried for years to help people overcome addiction because it's so profound. Addiction and depression and anxiety and PTSD and all these things are very treatment resistant. You can take psychopharmaceuticals for the rest of your life and you're still depressed. You know, yeah. you still are addicted. And so the reason why they use psychedelics is because it forces the brain to change. And when people use psychedelics, it taps into different receptors that allow for that individual to experience a much deeper healing and like newfound love for themselves. And I really believe that the antidote to self-sabotage is self-love. Like you would never sabotage something you truly loved, right? Absolutely. You know? And so then this is not even just, okay, we can, like, there's so many receptors that it touches on. For example, for eating specifically, the serotonin 2A receptor is, relates to satiety, right? And so when we're on these substances, it affects that receptor. So we feel very satiated. We feel very fulfilled. We're not, we're not likely to go and search for food. Um, so that's where my research really lies, but, but so much deeper than that. It's really just about cultivating this newfound sense of love for yourself and understanding who you are and being able to process the trauma that's holding your back and really being able to create a goal for yourself and seeing that you're worthy of achieving it. Very, very interesting. Now, when you were just talking about serotonin basically being synonymous with satiation, now, if you can just kind of break down the difference between serotonin and dopamine, because the two are often confused, as you know, um, but but the fact that when we're looking for dopamine hits, that's when we might fall into patterns of overeating or going back for the third round of dessert, whereas serotonin is different because it does qualify us as satisfied. So can you explain the difference between those two brain chemicals for us really quickly? Yeah, absolutely. I have dopamine tattooed on my wrist. So it's like, it's my favorite chemical. Um, so, and I, I want to preface that because I'm about to say a lot of mean things about it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so- no, I love dopamine too. I love dopamine too. Don't get me wrong. Like it's, it's awesome. It's great, but like authentic dopamine, you know, you have, it's not instant gratification. It's not the like self-sabotaging behaviors, like authentic dopamine. Dopamine. Love it. Yeah, <laughs> right. And and I think that that was a really important part because basically the way dopamine works is dopamine is the molecule of more. There's an amazing book written about it. It's called The Molecule of More if you're interested in looking more into it. But when dopamine is released, it makes us motivated to engage in more of that behavior. And dopamine, from a very adaptive perspective, is the reason why we get up out of bed every day. Dopamine is the reason why we go and search for food, right? It's like we have to have it in order to do these things. And people that have um, really low dopamine fall into this very like lethargy, depressed like type of vibe. So it's it's not about like not wanting it, but it, everything is in balance with neurochemicals. You don't want too little, you don't want too much. So when we release dopamine in a very healthy way, like you said, like get out of bed, yay me, take a shower, yay me. Oh, I just finished a project, woo, yay me. Like that is a, you're gonna release dopamine, right? And it's gonna feel really fucking good. Um, and it's gonna like feel satiating for a split second. And then simultaneously, you, you feel pleasure and simultaneously you feel craving or pain almost immediately after. 
And that's that pain, that craving is what makes you want to engage in more of that behavior. And it has to be there or else we would just like have one bite of something and be like, "Mm, I'm good. No, we need enough. You know, no one's ever had a a one bite of a donut and been like, oh, thank you. No, thank you. I don't want any more. I'm done. Um, Right. So dopamine is the molecule of more and it's related to movement and motivation and the cool thing, not cool, but the interesting thing about dopamine and how it relates to addiction is especially when we are engaging in um, receiving behaviors or receiving validation through things that are non-authentic. Um, so like, you know, highly palatable foods, drugs, whatever it is, we release a shit ton of dopamine. And when we release mm-hmm. so much dopamine, it, almost immediately we're in an even deeper void. And that's where that like deep craving feel, the brain thinks it's dying. And so it's just, it literally is like, I need yeah. to have access to this next thing or I'm going to die when that's tr- not true. Versus serotonin, which is satiation. So serotonin is like a walk in the forest in the sun where you're just like, I'm good. I'm happy. I don't need to move. Serotonin is very satiating and serotonin is uh, the reason, like the thing that makes us feel happy. And dopamine is more like motivation, right? So we need a balance of the two. And how actually I like to combat some of the dopaminergic disorders is through monopolizing on serotonin. Because I think serotonin gets like way overlooked. And especially when people are dealing with things like depression or whatever, a lot of the time those are actually dopamine it's a dopamine disorder, but you're being treated with an SSRI, which is affecting mm-hmm. serotonin, and then you're you're never really getting better, right? And so there's so right. many things that we can actually do to increase serotonin um, that do not require anything around us and just can satiate us for a moment so we can just feel that pleasure and and sit in that happiness without needing to engage in anything more. But yeah. And so, so what would some of those practices that someone may be able to put into play like right now? Like, let's say they don't want to go the route of the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Like, no thanks, just for that's what SSRIs are. So if someone doesn't want to go that route, because for me, as you have also mentioned, it's really the process of identifying the root cause. And I feel like some of those, you know, pharmaceutical drugs, if you're just slapping a Band-Aid on the problem, you're not actually addressing the root of the problem. So what could someone do if they did want to seek out ways to naturally allow their bodies to produce more ser- serotonin and feel satiated uh, more frequently if if they didn't have access or didn't want to take any of those drugs? Yeah, great question. I'm just going to preface this and just disclaimer to cover my own ass, but like I'm not a doctor, so please check with yep, your doctor. Yep, um, yep. And, and, and it's important to say just because some people like genuinely do need it and you don't just want to like Absolutely. come off all together because that can cause, wreak a lot of havoc. But um, I'm going to ask you something and so how do you does this resonate just let me know do you ever feel like when you get a compliment you're like oh yeah thank you but then like if somebody were to say like a criticism to you or like you, someone would even look at you the wrong way you're like you feel that like just deep in your bone right like oh you feel it in your you gut you really yeah. feel that but when somebody gives you a compliment like you feel it but you're not like yeah I'm gonna feel it forever you're just like okay thank you and then like move on immediately to the next thing absolutely right so that's one of the ways that the brain works because the brain is wired for survival not success right and so it actually is going to remember and hyperfixate and build programs and patterns over anything that's threat to survival so 
it's not a coincidence that your brain is continually playing worst case scenarios. So I think that like, that's actually like, let's start there, you know, and let's realize that like, we're not actually in any immediate danger. And if you find that your narrative is very like fear based or like, what if this happens? What if this happens? Like, Like your brain is doing it because it's trying to protect you, but we need to recognize it's not in danger. Now, one of the best practices that can just keep you in that serotonin satiation place is I want you to close your eyes. I want you to take a big deep breath. And I just want you to think about an experience that you had or maybe like somebody you love, just something that makes you just really happy. And just give me a nod once you got it. Okay, now I want you to stay there for 15 seconds and we're actually going to turn up the volume. Don't move on to another thought, just turn up the volume. Just keep going for 15 seconds. Just keep turning up the volume. Beautiful. Great. Right? Because when good things happen to us, the brain is literally wired to go, okay, great. And what's next? Where's the worry? Where's the threat? Right? But all we actually need to do is just fucking hang out there. This practice is called savoring. It's in positive psychology. So you just want to save, savor the moment the good moments. And if you do this three times a day, like the studies done in positive psychology, this is one done by Sligman or Siglielman in 2005. Um, but his study proved that if we do this savoring practice three times a day, that we can actually raise that baseline of happiness because it's not even necessarily about like being absent of depression or being absent of anxiety. It's actually like, that's not enough, you know, like how do we now optimize how do we, you know, be absent of those things, but also then like be happy and, and, and be productive and love ourselves? Like, how do we go to that next step? You know? Right. I feel like the baseline level is key. It's not that you're going to be the happiest person all the time and you're going to be peaking like 24-7. This baseline is slowly but surely raised, but it takes practice, you know? I mean, I practice yoga and I know that in Shavasana, which is the resting pose at the end of a practice, um, the it's the opportunity to rest your body, but also rest your mind and become more of the witness and less attached to the thoughts that you're having. But like you said, it's when your brain um, is kind of searching for the next thing, the next worry, the next, you know, I find myself doing that sometimes as well. But with practice, you can start to quiet the next thought. And so instead of always anticipating the next worry or the next plan that you have or the next thing that you're going to do once you get out of here, you know, just slowly stepping into that really, really being present and just embracing, embracing your happy feelings, or maybe your not so happy feelings, but just being there and not letting yourself run down to the end of the football field and try to score a touchdown just so you can get to the next, you know, step, right? So very, very interesting. So if someone were to, let's say, come to you right now, and obviously everybody is different, So, you know, a sort of relationship with food, depending on, you know, their genetics and everything might look different in your recommendations than someone with different genes and everything like that. But if someone were to come to you right now and, hey, I I don't follow any certain diet at the moment. I don't know if I really have a whole lot of trauma, but I fall into binge eating Um, or because because honestly, I feel like that's kind of, you know, where where my relationship with food would struggle is I would be really great for a little while 
while and, you know, I'm pretty healthy on a daily basis and it's not that I feel like I necessarily need to restrict certain foods or whatever. I, I wouldn't say that I'm a person who is ridden with trauma, but have never necessarily taken the deep dive into it, but I didn't necessarily identify with that. Okay. Um, but I would every now and then fall into the binge eating, like just way too much overeating, overindulging and feeling like shit afterwards, you know? So what would, what would your recommendation be to someone who doesn't, doesn't know if they have trauma or can't identify really negative aspects of their relationship with food, but falls into binge eating every now and then. Yeah. So, I mean, everybody has trauma. So like I, I hear a lot of clients and I thought this to myself, which is why I didn't think I had a problem, but I was just like, first of all, nothing like my biggest trauma. I mean, I've had lots of shit, but like my biggest trauma is like a kid calling me fat when I was eight. Like I work with people who have been sexually assaulted. Like it's just, there's so right. much. And so it's not a question of whether you have trauma or not you do, or you wouldn't be self-sabotaging. So that's the first thing. Um, and then also to really understanding that your relationship to food is very closely related to the mother wound. So, you know, even if you had a great relationship with your mom, but your mom didn't like her body or she continually dieted, like we tend to pick up on those things, of course, because then we think like food is going to be scarce or it's not safe for us to have. Um, and so like, that's another place that I would look, but your next binge always starts at the at the last one. It's it's how you talk to yourself because the reality is even people who don't have an issue with their weight or even people that don't have an issue with food overindulge. They just don't think about it like that. They just, they're not like, oh shit, I shouldn't have done that. They're just like, oh, and they move on. Like, oh, you know, actually I'm not hungry for this next snack, right? And so, you know, if we really, really believe and hopefully we're here at this point that your brain and your, your nervous system creates your reality, then... There is no gene that says this person's going to be overweight and this one isn't. There are genetic factors that can come into play, but at the end of the day, it is 1000% your environment and your thoughts, like your inner world. And so if you think it's bad for you, it will be. And so right off the bat, like when there are those overindulgences, the biggest thing to do is to not feel guilty. And it's very difficult because if you feel like physically ill, it's just like, if you want to not have an issue with overeating, you need to think like somebody who doesn't and they are not beating themselves up. So I would start right there. I would start with yeah. like that. And the more guilt and shame we have around those behaviors, the more frequently they're going to come. And so if you can't get out of the mindset in that moment of like, oh, I feel like shit, whatever, like there's so many things you can do. Go for a walk, like try and bring balance to the day so it's not all or none. It's not I overindulge and sit on the couch and I'm a piece of shit or I'm at the gym and I'm starving myself. It's like, no, no, I can overindulge and still go for a five minute walk. Like that reality does exist, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then I would just say like, if you can't fully get to a place where you're like, I love myself after you've had a behavior like that, then every time you have a negative thought, just be like, not important, not important. And practice like, this is called thought prioritizing, but like disassociate the thought, like just like let it go and move on to the next thing because your body knows how to digest it. So, and it's going to anyways, you can't change it. It's already done. Right, exactly. And I think that there are two levels. Obviously, awareness is very important. So there's the, you know, awareness of your thoughts and everything like that, but also being aware of your, your cues that you're receiving from your brain and body. Um, so there's, kind of levels to it, right? There's this self-awareness that takes on a shameful coat that is a shameful self-awareness. Oh, I'm guilty that I did this or I, you know, feel bad about myself because I'm showing up this way or whatever. And the goal is to then transform that shameful awareness into loving awareness, you know? And if you can't do that, that middle ground is more of 
neutral awareness, right? So, oh, it is what it is. You know, don't love myself for for eating five slices of pizza when I probably should have stopped at two, but here we are, you know, it whatever. It happens and we're moving on. So not stepping into the, God, you're just, you're an awful person. You're so overweight now. Like this is going to take days to recover from blah, 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 blah. So being aware enough to the point that all right. Yep. I recognize this thought pattern. Okay. I'm either going to let it be, or I'm going to try to balance it out with some of those actions. Like you said, it's not like the two are so mutually exclusive because you feel like shit doesn't mean you can't get up and go for a five minute walk. Right. Um, so, so very, very interesting. Well, I know that, I know that you've got some big things coming up. I think you have a Ted talk coming up soon. Don't I you? do. It's in like three weeks. It's very exciting. Oh my God. Are you so pumped? What a dream. I am very excited. I am like quite, yeah. I mean, it's the same chemical for excitement and anxiousness. So I'm going to go with excited, but like there is a deep level of anxiousness there. Um, But yeah, no, it is. I think uh, truly, I just really believe that this message is important and I think that people need to hear it. And I, and I know it saved my life. And I know there are people who are listening, not just here, but like all over the world. Like the goal of the TED talk is just to be like, holy, we have all, we have it all wrong, guys. Like it's, it's, we, we actually don't need to like starve ourselves to fit into a bikini. There's an easier way. Um, because, it's it's not even about the weight loss like that's a happy symptom but this is really about like the freedom that we all deserve and I know for me just being on yo-yo dieting food restriction just the obsession about constantly thinking what I'm eating what I'm not eating do I feel good about myself what does my body look like like it just literally is such a fucking waste of time and it like now I just have so much space in my brain to deal with things that actually matter, like spending time with my children. And, and, and so that really is to me, like the most important thing. I just want anybody who needs that message to be able to hear it so they can get their life back. Um, cause life is too short, but that is, um, that's the most exciting thing on my, <laughs> on my board these days. Oh, that's so awesome. And I love the manner in which you deliver the message too. You do it in such a relatable way. You're not preaching, preaching from a pedestal of, you know, I'm, I, here I am giving you all this information, not having really been through the maybe back half of all of my research and everything. You know, I, I feel like because you have a personal, uh, personal story that you identified with and caused you to, get into a little bit of a better relationship with nutrition and take those next steps to do all the research and everything. I feel like it opens up a lot more doors for connection for the people that are hearing your message. So I'm super excited for you. Super, super interested to listen into that TED Talk once once you get on stage there. Um, good luck. That's very awesome. Uh, and I want to give you just a moment to kind of talk about anything else that you have going on and direct anyone listening to your platforms. Of course, I will link all of your information uh, in the episode description, but I know that that, you know, you have been broadcasting a retreat that you're hosting um, coming up and you may be full, but I would love for you to be able to talk a little bit about that so that maybe in the future, anyone listening that is interested can connect with you. Oh, thank you. Well, the retreat is so much fun. I have never done a retreat before. We've done like live events in um, Toronto and uh, I'm from Canada. I can tell you're not. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Most of my clients are US based. Like that is really where my entire um, community lives. Uh, that and like uh, places in Europe. But 
yeah, the retreat's amazing. It'll be at Josh Retreat in California, and it's a five-day all-inclusive retreat. It's very luxury. It, we're not effing around. Like, the place is stunning, and the cool thing about Josh Retreat is, like, it, it's in a, an energetic vortex, right? So people literally go there to, like, do hallucinogenics and have a spiritual awakening, and that that so is cool. my goal. Um, I, I There's a shaman who's going to be there, like a facilitator. I will also facilitate, but um, it's really just, like, five days of uh, total brain and body like reprogramming detox there we have a private chef coming in to cook specifically to everybody's like individual needs um using ayurvedic medicine like people that are coming and getting one-on-one sessions like it's just we use hypnosis it's, it's gonna be the best um we have four spots left which is very exciting and um everything's included so like the plant medicine everything you just got to get yourself there and all the food of course but so that is really cool that's happening um end of may so may 30th to june 3rd and then the only other things are the mindful method which is my like main six month program that's really for somebody who wants to heal their relationship to food increase their confidence and um like basically let go of the weight that they don't need anymore um emotionally and physically and then i have the detox program which is if you don't struggle with eating behaviors but you've got some like funky stuff going on like digestive issues or um you know chronic conditions that are not related to overeating um that detox program really cultivates it's four months long and that really deals with like rebalancing the body even things like infertility um Mm. yeah and then we have a membership coming out in march which would be a bank of like all my hypnotherapy things and um monthly live call so those are all the things and you can find me on instagram that's That's where i live mostly yes and i'll make sure to make it clickable so that everyone can just click and go uh so very very exciting and i'm so thankful that you took the time to come on and share all of your insight today i really appreciate it you are so intelligent and i feel like again like i said your message rings true to everyone whether it's a degree of oh i resonate with that i've been through it or this is very informational and i'm excited to apply this um so thank you very very much for your time and i wish you the best of luck and i am excited to follow all of your endeavors moving forward. So thank you so much, Jordana. Oh, thank you. It was an honor. Thanks, Gabby. Hey, y'all. Before you head out, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. And most importantly, thank you for making the conscious decision to invest in yourself and expand your mind. By doing so, you are helping to elevate us all to live better lives. By showing up and emulating the things that you learned in today's crucial conversation, you are inspiring those around you. If you want to continue this domino effect, share this episode with someone that you want to help to unlock their maximum potential. And connect with me on Instagram at crucial.conversations to share your valuable feedback and offer recommendations for what you'd like to hear in future episodes. I love you all. Keep shining your unique lights. And I will see you next time on the Crucial Conversations podcast.